If you have your Bibles, please turn them with me to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, and we're going to be looking at the first five verses this evening. I don't know about you, but it's a little bittersweet to be announcing Revelation 22, that we're already in the final chapter of the book. I don't know that any of us would say that our study through this has flown by, but it's gone by quickly from my vantage point, and I'm a little saddened that it's going to be over soon. But turn there to Revelation 22, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 for us, but before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. And so let us attend to it as such and receive it from him as he so lovingly gives it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, The tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Beloved of God, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes So let's ask the Lord now to purify us and enlighten us by his word and by his spirit. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we long to rightly know you and thus to understand your word. And so we pray that you would cause our hearts to be free from the distraction of worldly affairs during this time that we might hear and understand what your spirit is saying to us as your people, the church. We desire, Lord, to attend to your word with all diligence and faith so that we might discern your will and cherish it and live by it with all earnestness. We know that we are entirely dependent upon you for this, and so we ask that you would do it all to the praise of your honor and glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, one of the great themes of Western literature, I probably don't have to tell you guys about this, but one of the great themes of Western literature that comes up again and again is the theme of returning home, of returning to a home that perhaps you lost, and the epic battle that you're engaged in to get back home. The first example that we really see of this in the Western canon of literature is, maybe you'll beat me to the punch here, is the Odyssey by Homer, where Odysseus, for a decade, is trying to get back home after the end of the Trojan War and all the adventures that he has to go on. And then finally, when he physically 
is home, then convincing the folks that have forgotten about him since he's been gone, reminding them of who he is. Or perhaps a better example, maybe this isn't a better example, but I like this example, is Dante's divine comedy. Right? Dante's journey from hell itself, then to purgatory, and then finally to paradise. He's returning home to God himself, where he beholds him in all of his glory. Or perhaps, here's a better modern example. What about the Wizard of Oz? What is Dorothy trying to do during the entire story? And the line that we all remember as she clicks her red shoes together, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. And so the question is, why do these sorts of stories reappear again and again in different incarnations? Why do they grab us? Why are they enduring? And the reason why I think that we're so drawn to stories like this, stories about returning home to a home that was lost, is because it speaks profoundly to our experience as fallen human beings. You see, we're all aware as Christians that God has made us for himself, as St. Augustine once wrote, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. God, in a very real sense, is our home as human beings. He created us for fellowship with him, and yet we lost that in the garden, didn't we? And so paradise and home has been lost to us. We're far from home. And our fall has been so great, and the chasm between us and God is so great that we are not able to bridge that gap. And yet these stories give us hope. You can come back home. You can come back home. But the sad reality is for us as fallen human beings, we can't bring ourselves home, can we? We can't. But guess who can? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he has. He's brought us back home. Even though paradise was lost to us through the sin of our federal head, Adam, and paradise was lost, it has now been regained for us through the second Adam, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the greatest story of all, the greatest return home story of all, the story of paradise regained. Because that's what we have in these first five verses of Revelation 22, piggybacking on what we saw already in Revelation 21. And the reason that John gives us this vision, pastorally, the motivation behind it is that we might behold what lies before us and understand that whatever the cost, it is worth sacrificing everything to regain paradise, to be with the Lord again. And Jesus is going to take us there. So throw off every hindrance. Pursue greater fellowship with the Lord. Plead with him to keep you as you know he will. And he will take us all the way home. And so as we see this vision of paradise regained, I want us to look at three images that John focuses us on. Three images within this vision of paradise regained that communicate to us the glory that awaits us as Christ brings us back home. First of all, we'll look at the image of the river and what that signifies, the symbolism there of us having access to this river of life. Second of all, in verse 2, 
we'll look at the tree of life and the significance there that we now have access to that again and the symbolism that's being used there by John. And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at the beatific vision itself in verses 3 through 5, the fact that we will see God face to face, which for us as believers is paradise itself. And again, the motivation here is that the Lord would use this glorious vision to cause us to remain faithful to him until we see him face to face. So let's look first then at the first image in this vision of paradise regained, the river in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And let me bleed over a little bit into verse 2, through the middle of the street of the city. Now, of all the images, maybe this one's a little bit more difficult for you to connect back to Eden, but it's abundantly clear that John is using this imagery to show us that paradise has now been regained for us. We're brought into the end times Eden, the eschatological Eden. And this first image clearly signals that for us, because if you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, we read that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And so what John is saying is, he's saying, Jesus, the Son of God, has regained access to you, for you, to this river of life that you lost access to in the first Adam. The second Adam has regained access for you. And this shouldn't surprise us because this was promised to happen again and again and again in the Old Testament through the prophets. And we don't have time to look at all the references there, but let me give you a couple of the most important ones prophesying that there would be this river of living water at the end times. In Ezekiel 14 verse 8, the the prophet Zechariah prophesied that in the new Jerusalem, at the end of all things, living waters would flow out of Jerusalem. Crystal clear. Water's going to flow out of Jerusalem at the end of all things. Another example is in Ezekiel 47, which we certainly don't have time to walk through, but I encourage you to go read that later. And in Ezekiel 47, what Ezekiel sees is water flowing from the temple. At the end of all things, and this river is flowing all the way to the Dead Sea. And it's a glorious vision because everything that these living waters touch just spring forth with life. Abundant life. Everything that these waters touch all the way down to the Dead Sea. Life is absolutely everywhere. And if you know the Psalms really well, Psalm 46 verse 6 might come to mind. Where we read that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Now this is just a few examples. But what you can see promised again and again, waters are going to flow from the end time temple, from Jerusalem. And isn't that exactly what we saw the people of God are represented as here in Revelation 21? The new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, 
That's us. And there's this river that's flowing. Now, you may be wondering, okay, great. It was promised that this would happen. We've been given access by Jesus. What do the waters represent? John is a big fan of symbolism. He's representing spiritual realities to us through these images. So what do the waters represent? Well, I had a fun time reading through church history and seeing the various interpretive conclusions that commentators came to. Some of them were baptism. They argued that these waters represent baptism or that they represent the Holy Spirit, which if I were to take my second most likely guess at what these waters represent, I would say it's the Holy Spirit or the message of the gospel, the doctrine, the content of the good news itself. Some even argued that it was Jesus himself. And yet I found none of these ultimately to be convincing. Now, if you disagree with me, that's totally fine. We can't be overly dogmatic here. But I was most convinced by John Gill in his commentary on Revelation. And what he says is that these waters represent the everlasting love of God. Freely springing forth. Freely flowing through the middle of the city, which in the ancient world, and this isn't hard for us to wrap our heads around here in the valley, water is a precious resource. And so you don't just want it freely flowing through the middle of the city. That's such a waste. And yet the picture here is of God's abundant, eternal, infinite love flowing in the midst of his people. And so John's point here is that all of the benefits that we experience, our union with Christ, faith itself, repentance, justification, sanctification, preservation, and one day glorification, all of these gifts find as their source the eternal love of God that as his people has been set upon us. And as a part of that defense for that, notice the source of these waters. Where are these waters flowing from? John says that they are flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So what's the source of all of these gracious benefits that we enjoy? It's not our obedience. It's not even ultimately our faith in Christ or our love for God. No, the source of all of these things is God's eternal, infinite love set upon us. And all of these benefits then flow out of that. The only reason that we love God is because he first loved us. And so the image that John is showing us is that we will spend eternity basking in that love. Now, you may think to yourself, well, don't we enjoy that love now? Yes, absolutely we do. But the image here is not that somehow God's love was not freely flowing upon us, and now it is at the end of all things. No, what's being imaged here is our subjective experience of it. Don't get me wrong, the love of God, it doesn't change because God doesn't change. And he is not just loving, he is love. And so his love for you had no beginning and it had no end. But here's our problem. Our problem is not that God's love is fickle. Thanks be to God, that's not the case. 
Our problem is that we are fickle. And so one day we may experience the love of God so clearly and experience his nearness and care for us so abundantly clearly. And then the next day we wonder, do you love me at all? And so we're up and we're down in our experience of the love of God. And yet the image that John is painting here for us or showing us through this Old Testament language and imagery is that the love of God and our experience of it is just continual. It's not hindered. There's no doubt on our part. There's no fear. There's no sin. And so we experience the abundant, free love of God. And as I was studying it this past week, I couldn't help but have that old hymn rolling around in my head. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love. So brothers and sisters, do you realize this is what awaits us? This is what we're looking forward to. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to experience it. To revel in God's love in this way. And how does God show us this love? He shows us this love through his son. By giving us his son. You notice that who's on the throne? God and the Lamb. The Lamb representing Christ. And it's through Christ that we experience all of this. Because the Son is the Father's love to us. And so it's through the Son, for all eternity, that we revel in God's love because He is God's love to us. So now that we've looked at this imagery of the river in this vision of paradise regained, let's secondly look at the tree. The tree in verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city, that's where the river was flowing, and then also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, if you had a harder time connecting the river of life back to Eden and Genesis chapter 2, hopefully you don't have a hard time connecting the tree of life back to Genesis chapter 2 because the connection and the imagery is so abundantly clear. This is the tree that God created and put in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And I think the theologian Francis Turretin rightly says of the tree of life that it was a sacrament and symbol of the immortality which would have been bestowed upon Adam if he had persevered in his first state. Now, there's a whole lot that we could unpack here. And if you want to hear more about the tree of life as a sacrament in the garden, I encourage you to go back and listen to the sermons that Chad preached in Genesis because we spent a lot of time on that. But here's what I want to mention here. That tree was a reminder to Adam that if he obeyed God, God also planted what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And said, obey me, don't eat from that. Eat from the trees from the rest of the garden and walk in obedience and fellowship with me. And so every time Adam ate of the tree of life, 
Not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of life. He was receiving a sacrament to strengthen him to continue in obedience and showing him what his future would be if he continued to walk in obedience. That he wouldn't just experience this fellowship with God for a time as he ended up experiencing it because he sinned. But if he walked in obedience, the tree of life was a sacrament to him, communicating the reality that he would enjoy that fellowship with God forever. And yet he didn't, did he? Adam didn't continue to walk in obedience. Instead, what did he do? He reached to the fruit and he ate it. And so probably the most despairing section in the entire scripture, other than maybe the crucifixion, is Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. They're kicked out of the presence of God. Their fellowship with God is broken. And do you remember what God puts at the entryway to the Garden of Eden? He puts an angel there, doesn't he? Cherubim with a flaming sword. Your access is denied. You will no longer enjoy fellowship with God. Instead of being under his blessing, you will now be under his curse. And so we lost access to the tree of life. We lost access to paradise. And it was all lost because of our sin. And we had no way to regain it. You understand, right? When we're born, it's not that we're in Adam's shoes and now we can make things different this time. No, his guilt is imputed to us. And we're sinful from our conception. And so that's exactly why the Father sent the Son. To regain access to paradise that we could not do for ourselves. And that's exactly what he did. He fulfilled all righteousness. And what happened on the cross? What happens on the cross is the curse that we deserve for our sin and and rebellion against God. Jesus experiences the fullness of that penalty. And do you know how that's represented to us in the gospel accounts? Remember what happens when Jesus dies and he says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And then his soul is separated from his body. What does Matthew says happen in Matthew 27, 51? The curtain that leads into the Holy of Holies, that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple is rent. It's torn in two. And do you know what's woven or imprinted on the face of that curtain, of that veil? It's two cherubim. And so what we're being told is that Jesus experienced, he's cut down, as it were, by the cherubim, the flaming sword of God's judgment in our place so that we now have access to the Holy of Holies, to God himself again. That's what Jesus came to do, where the first Adam failed. The second Adam came and succeeded And so we have access now. And here's the thing I want you to meditate on as well. Think about the language that John uses here in Revelation 22 verse 2. And compare that to the language that the psalmist uses in the first psalm to describe what the blessed man is like. Who is the blessed man? The blessed man, he doesn't walk in the ways of the world. He doesn't stand in their counsel, doesn't walk in their ways. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. 
He meditates on the law of God and he delights in it and he pleases the Lord. And so, because he's that way, the psalmist goes on to say, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. Huh. Well, that language sounds familiar, doesn't it? And he bears fruit, doesn't he? Well, that language sounds familiar as well, doesn't it? Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Psalmist goes on to say that his leaf does not wither. Huh. Well, the leaves here of this tree of life are healing for the nations. And so it's because of this connection that throughout the ages, commentators on the book of Revelation have said the tree of life here represents Christ. The tree of life in the garden is a type of Christ showing us that we'll never be able to, in and of ourselves, secure this kind of relationship with God for eternity. And so it's pointing us to Christ. And Christ is the blessed man that no other man was or ever will be. And he did that in our place. And then he was treated like the wicked on the cross. And here's the thing. Because we're united to him by grace through faith. And not just Jews, by the way. The nations. All the elect from every tongue and tribe and nation that the Father has given to the Son. They are, through their union with the Lord Jesus Christ, given access to him, the tree of life. And so they then start to produce fruit and hate the ways of the world and the flesh and the devil and delight in the law of God and benefit their neighbor through their good works. And so do you see how glorious this imagery is? We've been given this access to Christ to God. And we enjoy that fellowship now. But it's imperfect. It's broken. And we'll talk about that more in the next point. But our fellowship with the Lord won't be like that forever. Broken and imperfect. And that's what Jesus regaining access to the tree of life. Since he is the tree of life. Communicates to us here. So we've looked at the first image of the river, the second image of the tree, and now lastly, let's look at the third and final image in this vision of paradise regained in the beatific vision itself. And before I even read verses 3, 4, and 5, I just want to mention to you and sort of prepare you for this I'm not going to deal with verse 3 or verse 5 because those realities have already been dealt with in chapter 21 by Russell quite exhaustively. So I'm not even going to touch those two verses. Here's what I want us to focus in on. Verse 4, they will see his face. That's what we're going to focus on. But to get us headed in that direction, let me read verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So what I want to focus on here is that phrase, they will see his face. Because, brothers and sisters, this is what 
heaven is ultimately about for us. This is ultimately why we should look forward to it. To see God. And throughout the ages, the theologians have referred to this as the beatific vision. And all that means, it's a fancy word for, it's a happy vision. It's a happy seeing. In the seeing, you find happiness because this is the great end for which you are created. To know God. And so what was being communicated to us is that we will experience that. And don't you long for that? I know I do. So you may wonder to yourself, all right, so why can't I experience that now? Why can't I experience knowing the Lord perfectly according to my nature as I was created to know him? Why can't I know him that way now? Why can't I experience the beatific vision right now tonight? It's a great question. You know, someone asked that question before you. You know who asked that question before you? Moses. Remember in Exodus 33? Lord, show me your glory. And what's the Lord's response to him? In Exodus 33, verse 20, what does he say? The Lord says, no man can see my face and live. Well, why is that? How come we can't see the face of God, know him perfectly now, because it'll kill us, but then at the end of all things, we will be able to see his face. We will be able to know him perfectly. Well, the reason for that is because even though we're a new creation, We are no longer what we once were. We have not yet been perfected, brothers and sisters. Our bodies are still fallen. You understand that's why we all still die. And our souls are still imperfect. That's why we all still sin. And so our bodies and our souls have to be perfected before we're able to know the Lord as we were created to know him. Now, again, I want to nuance this. We don't know God. We won't know God then the way that God knows himself. It's not that Jesus comes back and somehow transforms our nature so that now we're infinite. Like that sentence doesn't even make sense to me. If you can come up to me and make it make sense, great. But that doesn't even make sense. We're finite. We will always be finite. But what it does mean is according to our finite nature, we will know God as we were created to know him. Perfectly. And we long for that, don't we? We want that to happen. And it's interesting that the theologians go round and round on what came first, the chicken or the egg in this regard. Is it beholding the vision that then perfects us? Or is it that we're first perfected by Christ So then we can behold the vision. I think I've sort of tipped my hat to which direction I lean. But I don't think we can answer that question definitively. And at the end of the day, does it really matter? At the end of the day, what are we most excited about as Christians? The fact that God has promised to us that we will know him in this way. And I don't want you to just take my word for it. Again and again, this promise comes up in Scripture. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? What's the great blessing of those who are pure in heart? They shall see God. You will know him perfectly. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus isn't saying you're going to see God with your eyeballs. The kids can tell me why not. God is spirit, and he does not have a body like 
men, we will see Jesus' glorified body. Absolutely. But the seeing here is knowing him. It's beyond, in some ways, our comprehension. Even as we ache and long for it, and everything within us leaps forward and wants to say, yes, I can't wait for that day. But that's what's going to happen. And so Jesus promises it to us. Paul talks about this promise as well in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now notice what Paul says here. Paul doesn't say you don't know the Lord at all. He doesn't say that you don't have fellowship and communion with the Lord now. We do. But it's through a glass dimly. You understand it's our fellowship and communion with the Lord is mediated. It's not direct. It's not immediate. In other words, we commune and fellowship with the Lord through his word. And through prayer. And through the sacraments, the means of grace that he has given, the Lord's Supper and baptism. But you see, a day is coming when those means will be removed. And we will have immediate access and fellowship to God. Now, i got to throw another nuance on there. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus will mediate for us eternally. I'm not saying that he won't be our mediator anymore. I'm saying we won't have mediated access to the Lord through the means of grace. We will have immediate access to him. John says elsewhere in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. We have this relational status now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We're not now what we will be then, even though we are children now. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And the last evidence of this that I want to give you, which I hope is a great encouragement to you, is from Jesus' high priestly prayer. Again, from the Gospel of John, in John 17, verse 24 Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now I have a question for you. Is the Father going to deny any request to his only begotten beloved Son? Absolutely not. And so Jesus has prayed that this would happen. And so we can know that it will happen. That we will behold the Lord in his glory. Because we will be perfected. And so this is what we all long for as believers, isn't it? And I don't know about you. Sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, I'm mindful of the fact that I'm not home yet. Because I continue to sin. I'm like, yeah, that's true. I'm reminded, obviously, of the fact that I'm not home yet because I still sin. But you know what I'm probably most reminded, most poignantly reminded that I'm not home yet, that I'm I'm not back to paradise regained, is at those sweet times of fellowship and communion with the Lord and with his people, whether it's in corporate worship, whether it's in family worship, or even times in private devotion and worship, And you feel so near to him. And it's just like this. I want Jesus to come back right now. And yet you're reminded that you're not home yet. Because then you have to leave. 
or then it ends on to the next thing. You see, you don't just want to experience that for a moment. And even that pales into comparison to the experience that we will have at the end of all things when we see him face to face after we've been perfected. And so I'm most reminded that I'm not home yet in those moments. But here's the thing. A day is coming when we will know that times infinity. We can't even wrap our heads around it. And yet our hearts long for it, don't they? Paradise has been regained for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why for all eternity, we will constantly be reminded of him and his glory, won't we? Him and his glory as we behold it. And on that great day, I believe that the words of that old hymn, the sands of time are sinking. These words were inspired by words penned by Samuel Rutherford. This is going to be Our song, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And so may that vision and that reality of that coming day affect every decision that we ever make, brothers and sisters, as we pursue the Lord, knowing full well Jesus will take us all the way home because he has regained paradise for us. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these things take our breath away. It almost seems too good to be true. And yet we know that it is. All because of your abundant eternal love shown to us in your son, who is the tree of life. That we know a day is coming when we will know you, even as we are fully known. Oh, how we long for that day. We pray that this vision would have such an impact on our hearts and our minds by the work of your spirit that it would shape everything we do until we finally experience it. Do this in us, we pray. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.